Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Section 18 of Finland and the Tsars, 1809-1899 to by Joseph Robert Fisher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Alistair. Chapter 15. The Constitutional Argument The Law Committee in their report passed briefly over the earlier portions of the controversy. That the form of government of 1772 and the Act of Union and Security of 1789 are the fundamental laws referred to in the assurance given by Alexander I at Borgo is established by the extracts from the speeches and writings of Alexander himself and of his secretary and confidential adviser, Count Speransky, which have already been cited in the historical explanation in Chapter 4. That, in virtue of that constitution, and of its confirmation by successive Tsars, the Diet of 1877 possessed ample power to legislate for the Finnish army, and exercised that right in conjunction with their sovereign, Alexander II, is also abundantly proved. And the argument is noticed that the fundamental Swedish laws could not be valid because they contain provisions inconsistent with Russia's inherent rights. The procedure in connection with the Diet of 1877 and the military service law sanctioned in the following year is treated at greater length. In reply to the assertion that Count Milyutin and the Tsar only consented to the passing of the law because it was represented to them by the Diet, that it was merely a temporary regulation that could at any time be altered by the monarch without the consent of the estates, it is pointed out that there is not a single word in the correspondence that could lend colour to such a contention. The estates did not, of course, imagine that a first attempt at legislation on such a subject could be final, and so, in view of the possibility of some parts of it proving unsuitable to the social and financial condition of the country, and thus calling for an amendment, they requested the Tsar, within ten years or sooner, to present the estates a proposition for such alterations as might be found necessary. In that, they had obviously in view that the law should in the future be altered by the same method as that in which it had been made, that is, with the cooperation of the estates. In fact, this has already been done by the amendments of November 20th, 1882, December 29th, 1885, January 25th, 1886, March 18th, 1886, and February 11th, 1889. Nor does the report on the subject of the bill made by the Finnish Senate to His Majesty contain the slightest allusion to the idea that the act was a mere temporary expedient to be altered when necessary by the authorities in St. Petersburg. The Senate, in its humble representation, after giving an account of the rather considerable alterations made in the propositions by the estates, proceeds to point out that some of the alterations so made only affect the wording or redaction of this project, without making any real alteration in the matter or substance of it, whilst others bear only on matters of administrative detail 
in which correction or amendment should such prove necessary ought to be obtainable in the future without any difficulty it must be obvious to anyone who understands procedure that here the senate are only expressing the opinion that the estates would not hesitate to cooperate with the authorities in enacting such alterations as were shown to be necessary cat Milyuton, the minister of war as is shown by the records received a copy of this humble representation and can have been under no possible misapprehension as to its meaning indeed it was after taking cognizance of this and other documents relative to the measure that count Milyuton recommended its confirmation including those clauses which it was proposed to safeguard with the special sanctity of fundamental laws there is no evidence it is true that the war minister had knowledge of the particular fact that certain clauses were to be declared fundamental but that point whatever the truth may be is of no real importance since count Milyuton must have known that a measure presented to the estates and passed by them and afterwards sanctioned and promulgated by the emperor became a law of finland and could not be altered otherwise than with the approval and assent of the estates count Milyuton was in fact no stranger to finland or its constitutional methods he was present with alexander the second when his majesty in person opened the first deed of helsingfors in eighteen sixty three and heard the deliberate and carefully worded declaration made by the monarch that the principle of the constitutional monarchy was inherent in the character of the finnish people and that of that principle all their laws and institutions bore the impress and he was naturally not ignorant of the only possible meaning which in any parliamentary state in the world attaches to the circumstance of the monarch giving his sanction to a measure accepted by the estates even if it could be imagined that the minister of war did not know the meaning of the deist deliberation and the monarch's sanction it so happens that there exists positive proof that count Milyuton was not only acquainted with the finnish constitution in general but also with the particular swedish statutes on which it is based in a dispatch forwarded by him to the minister secretary of state for finland on october twenty fifth eighteen seventy six he discusses the question of the person to whom the command of the Finnish troops should be entrusted, and in the course of the argument he says, Moreover, according to the Swedish constitution of August 21st, 1772, which lies at the basis of Finland's constitutional organization, the supreme command of all troops and of the army belongs solely to the king and from another portion of the same dispatch it is clear that count Milyuton had had under his particular consideration the position and powers of the estates the senate had it seems expressed its doubt in connection with this same matter of the command of the army as to the possibility of obtaining the assent of the estates of the country to an alteration of the fundamental law which makes it requisite that every holder of a finnish office must be a citizen of finland and the minister of war quotes this expression of opinion and comments upon it these extracts entirely dispose of the contention of the russian general staff that count Milyuton was so little versed in constitutional law in general and in the constitution of finland in particular as to imagine that every law that was not expressly declared a fundamental law could be altered by the monarch without the consent of the estates such an idea in fact existed in no quarter in the time of alexander the second when finland's constitutional rights were well understood and were respected in the highest quarters 
Such absurd theories are a later invention, and have their origin in interested political motives. Count Milyutin was well aware that the monarch's confirmation of the military service bill made it a law that could only be altered by the same authority as that which had created it, namely the estates and the emperor. That being so, it was from his point of view a matter of secondary importance, whether the law was a fundamental one, requiring the assent of all four estates, or an ordinary law, requiring the assent of three only. Nor does the dispatch of Count Milyutin, bearing date July 31st, 1878, when properly considered, support the contention of the general staff that the war minister imagined that he could alter the new law without the consent of the estates. The terms of that dispatch are as follows. In obedience to the gracious command of his imperial majesty, and in answer to the dispatch of the Secretary of State of July 14th of this year, number 512, I have herewith the honour to inform your excellency that the War Department, being in agreement with the Senate of Finland, both in its judgment of the military service law approved by the estates of the Grand Duchy of Finland, and also as to the special courses and motives on account of which the Senate has considered it possible to consent to the considerable alterations made by the estates in some of the fundamental provisions of the proposed regulations, which by the gracious command were submitted to the examination of the Diet, does not discover any obstacle to submitting the said Lord for the gracious confirmation of his Imperial Majesty in the form in which it was accepted by the estates. In the first place, because this law, according to the request of the estates, would only be a temporary one, and subject to revision after the same had been applied during ten years, or even sooner, should such revision be found necessary, and according further to the declaration of the Senate as gathered from dispatch number 512 of the Secretary of State, that the necessary alterations in details and drafting could in case of need be made afterwards without difficulty, and in the second place, in order that the carrying out of a military reform so necessary for the Grand Duchy should not be postponed. At the same time, the War Department has found that it is able to concur in the declaration of the Senate of Finland in the relation to the representation made by the Estates on the question of assigning means to cover the cost of the introduction of compulsory military service. But, upon condition that the proposals as to the organization of the Finnish troops, and as to their administration and military arrangements, which proposals are dependent on the decision of this question, and would be drawn up by the Senate before being submitted to the gracious ratification of His Imperial Majesty, will in due time be communicated to the War Department, with the view of obtaining its opinion, and the question of abolishing the system of quartering in Finland as requiring very careful treatment, especially in so far as it concerns the imperial troops, should be separated from the present question, and subjected to thorough scrutiny, at first on the spot, in order that an opportunity should be given to the local military officers to take part in such scrutiny, 
and afterwards in the War Department itself. In communicating the above, I have the honour, etc., etc. The Minister of War here shows that he understood that no real alteration of the law could be made without the consent of the estates, for whilst thinking that alterations in details and drafting might be made by the officials, he makes a distinction between such verbal modifications and that revision for which the law would come up after its ten years' practical working. If he had imagined that the whole law could be altered at the will of the department, and without the assent of the diet, it would not have been necessary to make any such distinction. It will also be noticed that the opinion of the war minister on the temporary nature of the measure is based on the statement made by the estates, and from that statement Count Milutin would also have learned that such revision after temporary operation required the assent of the estates. The argument as to the desirability of a confirmation of the law in order that the carrying out of a military reform so necessary for the Grand Duchy should not be postponed is also conclusive as to the knowledge on the part of the Minister of War that it was necessary to take advantage of the assent of the estates even to what he regarded as an imperfect measure, as otherwise, the Diet being dissolved, no military reform could be carried in the ordinary course for a period of five years. But whether or not Count Milyutin fully understood the distinction between fundamental laws and general laws, it is quite certain not only that the Emperor Alexander II, with a perfect knowledge of the legal significance of his act, confirmed the military service law as it had passed the estates, but that he also accepted and approved their resolution and request that certain parts of the law should acquire the special sanctity of a fundamental law, and that he, with this full knowledge and consent, signed a special manifesto to that effect. This in itself is of course decisive so far as the absolute and unquestionable validity of the measure in all its parts is concerned. The Law Committee did not think it necessary to discuss the preposterous idea of some Russian writers that the validity and force of a law confirmed by the monarch could be called in question on the ground of an opinion expressed years afterwards by some third party or on the ground that His Majesty did not comprehend the full significance of his act of ratification. It confined itself to pointing out the fact that not only was Alexander II thoroughly conversant with the constitutional circumstances of Finland in general, but that he was also well instructed on this particular point. The minutes of the Finnish committee for August 30th, 1878 have been produced and examined, and on this record, which has been signed and approved by His Majesty himself, there is the express reminder that on account of the fundamental character that attaches to certain paragraphs of the military service law, the conditions governing the said paragraphs would be that no alteration in them could be effected, save on the initiative of His Imperial Majesty and with the united assent of all four of the estates of the Diet. The special manifesto signed by His Majesty on December 6th, 18th, 1878 was in the following terms. In addition to our this day graciously approving and confirming a military service law for the Grand Duchy accepted by the estates of Finland, we have, in conformity with what the estates have proposed, found it good, most graciously, to declare that the following paragraphs in the same, which are of greater importance, 
and in part also involve an alteration of the fundamental law in force. Viz. One, two, three, four, five, six, nine, thirteen, nineteen, twenty, hundred and twenty, hundred and twenty one, hundred and twenty two, and a hundred and twenty three shall be regarded as paragraphs of a fundamental law. The committee found it necessary also to deal with another argument which finds expression in the reports of some Russian commissions charged with the preparation of the new army proposals, and which takes the form of exaggerating the alleged claims of Finland under the fundamental laws of 1772 and 1789 and thereby representing Finland's attitude as one impossible to recognise consistently with the safety of the empire. It is said that Finland claims to be an independent state, bound to Russia simply by what the German jurists call a personal union. This has never been the contention of any Finnish publicist of standing, and the estates of Finland have on several occasions, acting in conformity with the law committee, both in statutes and otherwise, give an expression to the acknowledgement that Finland, whilst enjoying domestic autonomy, is inseparably united with the Russian Empire, and constitutes a part of Russia, no other opinion can be said to prevail in Finland. As regards the Imperial Manifesto of February 3rd, 15th, 1899, and the fundamental statutes annexed to it, the conception that seems to the committee to form its basis is that the Imperial Council in St. Petersburg should be made into a sort of legislative organ for Finland, and that laws could thus be passed for that country, even in cases in which the form of government of 1772 and the law of the Diet of 1869 permit the legislation only with the approval and consent of the estate. The statutes proposed in the manifesto certainly suggest the possibility of measures passed by the estates being reconsidered and confirmed in a wording differing from or even directly contrary to, that fixed by the Diet. And as the manifesto, which in that respect presupposes a method of legislation entirely foreign to the law of Finland, seems thus to have in view that the present proposal for a military service law should also be dealt with according to the fundamental statutes referred to, and, as this question is thus inseparably connected with that submitted to the estates, the committee, being convinced that the state of affairs has not been fully laid before his imperial majesty, is of opinion that the estates should in their humble reply give prominence to the circumstances which ought in this connection to receive his majesty's gracious consideration, and which are as follows. 1. The fundamental laws confirmed by Emperor Alexander I form, as the monarch several times expressed, a constitution, and this includes, amongst other things, that the country shall be governed according to its own laws, and that the monarch has the right to rule and govern conjointly with the local authorities, that a law, whether fundamental or otherwise, to be valid in this country can be made only with the approval and assent of the estates, except in certain departments in which the monarch has the right to issue laws without the cooperation of the estates, yet so that it is done with the concurrence of the local authorities, and as regards the military burden especially, that a law on compulsory military service cannot be made without the knowledge, 
free will and assent of the estate. Two, since the separate constitution of Finland was thus confirmed, neither the institutions of the empire nor its principles of autocracy have ever been introduced or have been enforced in this country. The Imperial Council can, therefore, not act as a legislative body for Finland. 3. The Manifesto of 3rd, 15th February and the Fundamental Statutes annexed thereto set up for the making of laws that shall be valid also in Finland another method of procedure than that fixed in the fundamental laws of the country. These decrees have not only been drawn up by authorities foreign to the country, but they have also been issued without the approval and consent of the estates of Finland, and, moreover, have been promulgated here in a manner not consistent with the laws of the country, namely, by means of a copy without being countersigned by the Minister Secretary of State for Finland. In consequence of this, it is evident that the manifesto and the fundamental statutes are in conflict with the right of self-governing, which, according to Finland's constitution, belongs to her people. 4. Since Finland's fundamental laws do not allow for the making of laws for the country in any other way than that fixed in these fundamental laws, law-making for the whole empire has not, properly speaking, heretofore existed. This does not assert that the monarch, before taking measures valid for Finland, might not have consulted the authorities of the empire when the subject was one in which its interests were concerned. And as the monarch has, in certain classes of cases, the right of issuing laws without the assent of the estates, it has been permissible constitutionally in such cases to enact laws that were valid both in the empire and in the Grand Duchy, without the matter having been treated by the estates. This applies to such matters as the succession to the crown, and treaties, and other relations with foreign powers. Such things concern the whole empire, and the administration of such cases has never given rise to any difficulties. 5. Should, however, the procedure for lawmaking for Finland, which has hitherto been in force, be found to require amendment, with a view to rendering possible the introduction of a system of real imperial legislation, such modifications of the constitution of Finland can, with due regard for the sanctity, of the fundamental laws be brought about only with the cooperation of the estates. The estates, in concluding their humble reply, adopt and incorporate the report by the law committee, after once more assuring the emperor that the rights of the Finnish nationality have in them nothing contrary to the dignity or to the highest interests of the Russian Empire, and repeating the declaration made by Alexander I enclosing the dear Borgo, that Finland would be placé désormais au rang de nation sous l'Empire du Célois. The estates declare that they simply hold fast to the sanctity of the rights thus guaranteed. They again refer to the fact that the Finnish people have never, during their ninety years' union with Russia, been a cause of anxiety to the Tsar or Empire, and they point out that the despondency that now prevails has been caused solely by the reiterated attacks on what they value as their highest and most precious possession. 
they conclude with these words. The estates are assured that the aforesaid deeply grave circumstances have not, or at least not completely, been laid before your imperial majesty, whilst on the other hand it is to be feared that communications injurious to Finland, the wrongfulness of which time will surely show, have been made not only to your imperial majesty, but to influential circles in the empire. But in Finland's people the conviction has, from of old, been root fast the people can and ought to turn with confidence to its monarch, in order to lay before him what moves it to the depths of its heart. Convinced of the importance of what has been set forth above, the estates have thought that it ought, with humility, to be submitted to your imperial majesty's own gracious consideration, and the estates venture to believe that those high-minded words, once addressed to the Finnish people from the same throne, which your majesty now occupies, shall still prevail, namely, that utterances of probity, truth, and obedience to the law can always reckon on the monarch's imperial protection and gracious favour. In summing up what has been already set forth, the estates humbly represent to your imperial majesty as follows that according to the constitution of Finland, a law which shall be observed by the Finnish people can only be made in the form prescribed by the fundamental laws of the country, which provide that not only is the monarch to be assisted therein by the local authorities, but also that a law concerning matters not pertaining to the so-called cases of order and economy shall be passed with the knowledge and assent of the estates, that, on the other hand, the order for the making of laws intended to be in force also in Finland, which has been prescribed in the statutes annexed to the Gracious Manifesto, is in conflict with the fundamental laws of Finland, and with the constitution based upon them, that the manifesto and the statutes thereto annexed which have been passed without the approval and assent of the estates of Finland, and also in another order than that prescribed by the fundamental laws of the country, cannot in consequence have in Finland the sanctity of law, that especially the law concerning military service for the inhabitants of Finland cannot, without violating the constitution of the country, be issued as an imperial law, or otherwise ratified by the Emperor and Grand Duke, until it has been accepted by the Estates, that the military service law now in force, which was passed in the order prescribed by the constitution of the land, cannot be altered or abolished otherwise than by the concurrent decision of the Emperor and Grand Duke, and the Estates, that in case your imperial majesty should, however, find that a special method of making laws that are to be of common application to the empire and to Finland is called for, the estates expect your imperial majesty will be pleased to lay before the estates, in order that it may be treated according to the law, 
a gracious proposition containing a scheme for such an alteration of the fundamental laws of the country as is necessary for that purpose. And finally, the estates desire to declare, the estates consider it their duty, based upon the highest considerations, to hold fast to the law and the right which in the year of 1809 were solemnly guaranteed to the Finnish people to be irrevocably maintained. End of section 18「Section 19 of Finland and the Tsars, 1809-1899, by Joseph Robert Fisher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Alistair, with sections in French read by Claudia Caldi. Chapter 16. The Next Step The careful and deliberate mode of action adopted by the Diet in dealing with the Russian aggression and the strict legal form in which its decisions were framed, were extremely irritating, and at the time not a little embarrassing to the hotspurs of the anti-Finnish press. They had looked on the abolition of a constitution as a thing to be ordered by a governor-general, and there and then accomplished. An outbreak of violence they were prepared for, as well as for the stern repression that would have followed, but the imperturbable determination of the whole Finnish people to maintain their rights and at the same time to abide within the bounds of strict order and legality, was a puzzle to them. The movement of constitutional defence neither boiled over nor grew cold, and the few attempts that were made to create a disturbance by imported agents provocateur only provoked ridicule and were soon given up. One of the many tales circulating in Helsingfors in those anxious days was to the effect that General Bobrikov, desirous of ascertaining the state of feeling in the capital, and anxious for the public employment of a special Russian gendarmerie, they were already being employed secretly, sent for the chief of police and questioned him as to the force on which he could rely to maintain order. Seventy thousand, your excellency, was the prompt reply of the Finnish official, and the governor-general took the hint that the population of Helsingfors were unanimous, and that disorder need only be looked for in his own hired agents. When it was seen that the Finnish estates, instead of simply accepting or rejecting or declining to consider the measure, were making its presentation the occasion of a carefully prepared historical and constitutional vindication of the rights of their country, the wrath of the Russian nationalists knew no bounds, and papers like the Novovremja and the Svit were louder than ever in their denunciation of the pseudo-statesmen and provincials and anti-Russians, who, of course, with the active assistance of the English Protestants, the Jewish bankers, and the Freemason lodgers, were stirring up such a conspiracy against the Slavonic cause. Finland is a Russian province like any other, cried the Novovremja, and great things were talked about what would happen to Finland and the Finnish estates for their temerity, but no one seemed to know just how to bell the cat. The Diet was closed on May 18th with the most cold and dry imperial message ever delivered to Finland by a Tsar since Alexander I pledged his word in Borgo Cathedral, no reference whatever being made to the work for which it had been summoned, or the result, or lack of result, of the somewhat prolonged session. The form of dismissal was said to be a special inspiration of General Bobrikov's, whose plan is to ignore the Diet as much as possible and treat its work and its utterances as of no importance. 
He had been in St. Petersburg taking counsel with his backers, and had, it was understood, secured the cancellation of a much more gracious message that had been drafted at the Finnish Secretariat. But the Governor-General's best friends do not pretend that he is a clever man, and this method of snubbing the Diet was soon discovered to be a mistake, for it gave the Finns the last word, and the most prominent news all over Finland the next day was not that of the Tsar's message, but of the firm and moderate address of the Marshal of the Nobles. Baron Knut von Troil, governor of Orbor ninety years ago, was the first of the prominent men to give in his allegiance to Alexander I, who warmly recognised his services, and ever since the family has been loyal to Finland and to Russia. The present head of the house, who in his capacity as Marshal of the Nobles headed the estates when they waited on the Governor-General to hear the terms of the imperial message, seized the opportunity, as did also the three Talmen, to sum up the work of the memorable session, to re-emphasise the illegality of the attempted coup d'etat from St. Petersburg, and to reassert the self-governing rights of Finland. Baron von Troil's concluding sentences were, Recognising the obligations arising from the indissoluble bonds existing between Russia and Finland, the estates cherish the hope that it may be possible for Finland in the future, as in the past, to develop the principles which have been applied by the magnanimous Russian monarchs, principles which have taken deep root in the minds of the people, which have procured for the country a high degree of culture, and have always secured respect for the laws, and have promoted order and tranquillity. Laterally, an opinion has more and more asserted itself, according to which the highest statesmanship consists in the assimilation of the smaller races, without taking into consideration the national conditions and the historical development of such peoples. Finland, under self-government, has hitherto always been law-abiding, and has never caused anxiety to Russia, and the real interests of Russia would be best preserved if the so-called stranger peoples, amongst whom the Finns are numbered, were permitted to follow the path of development marked out for them by history. Russia would then have in the Finns a faithful, peace-loving people, which, although pursuing its own civilizing mission, would at the same time willingly and joyfully fulfill those obligations towards Russia, which can be justly imposed upon Finland. Such words, delivered so publicly at the close of the extraordinary Diet, could not be pleasing to St. Petersburg, and so, after a short interval, the remarkable step was taken of issuing a special imperial manifesto in answer at once to the reply of the estates and to the speeches of Baron von Troil and the Talmen. This document, which is for the present the Emperor's last word as to the Finnish questions, and which was issued on June 22nd, 1899, runs as follows. To the Governor-General of Finland, at the closing of the extraordinary deed, by you on May 18th, 30th, the representative of the estates brought to my notice the state of alarm into which they had been thrown by the forthcoming reorganization of military service in the Grand Duchy of Finland, and the promulgation of the manifesto of February 3rd, 15th. To my regret, I perceive from the speeches of the Marshal of the Nobles and the Speakers that the representatives of the country failed to accept the considerations of the general state utility 
upon which the necessity of those measures depends, and allowed themselves the expression of unwarrantable opinions on the subject. I authorize you to declare at large that those opinions are incorrect, and that they do not correspond with the position of affairs established since the beginning of the present century, whereby Finland forms an integral and inseparable portion of the Russian state. I desire also that it should be made known to the Finnish people that having received, on ascending the throne, the sacred duty of watching over the welfare of all the population subject to the Russian sceptre, I found it good to preserve to Finland special organizations of internal legislation conferred upon it by my imperial ancestors. At the same time, I took upon myself as an inheritance from the past the task of defining the relations of Finland to the Russian Empire by the force of positive law. With this object I confirmed the fundamental statutes of February 3rd, 15th, which lay down the rules for drawing up of general state laws concerning Finland. In accordance with this from henceforth unassailable legislative act, the labours of the extraordinary diet will be dealt with and taken into consideration in the final drafting of the military law. While expecting you to maintain the present mode of action in confirming the minds of the population of the district as to the true meaning of the measures undertaken for the purpose of strengthening the bonds uniting the empire and the Grand Duchy, I trust that the faithful devotion of the Finnish people, which I do not doubt, will be proved by deeds, and thus render easy for you the carrying out of my instructions. Nicholas It will be seen that this document, in spite of the firmness of its tone, leaves matters between Russia and Finland very much where they were in February. In spite of its rejection by the Diet, the Tsar declares the measure of military reorganization to be forthcoming, and announces that the principles of the February Manifesto and its accompanying statutes are established law, from henceforth unassailable. But no really irrevocable step has been taken, no attempt has been made as yet to enforce the illegal statutes, and the military service bill will probably not be heard of again till early next year. It is certain, for example, that this year's autumn conscription will take place on the old 1878 basis, so there is still time for the Tsar's second thought. The ordinary Diet meets on January 25th, 1900, and then it will begin to be seen whether the Tsar means definitely to force the ruin of Finland, rather than admit his advisers have led him into making a mistake. General Bobrikov and the Nationalists, of course, used very big words, and when the governor hears of the people leaving the country, in thousands, he says, Let them go. We can soon fill their place with Russian peasants. But the thriftless, unskilled Mujik, who starves on the black soil in South Russia, would not long keep up the struggle for existence among the rocks and swamps of Finland. And Monsieur de Witt, the only real statesman in the emperor's entourage, would have something to say if, as is inevitable, Industrial and commercial ruin in such flourishing ports as Helsingfors, Hango, and Viborg were to follow the dragooning tactics of the reactionaries. And even General Bobrikov himself must be, by this time, a little wiser than he was a year ago, when, with a light heart, 
he took in hand the task of bringing the Finns to their senses, much as he would face a sulky batch of conscripts. That is the way to speak, cried the Novovremja delightedly, on the news of the governor's first bullying speech to the Finnish Senate in October 1898 and the Slavophile organ predicted a speedy end to the fantastic notion about self-government and constitutional liberty, which the mistaken weakness of past governors had encouraged. But General Bobrikov has found himself powerless before the law. He applies, it is true, for further administrative powers, that is, for the power to arrest and banish at will. But even he can hardly expect that the grandson of Alexander II will consent to such a flagrant outrage as that. It is, in fact, easy to talk of further powers, but short of the methods by which order was made to reign in Warsaw or in Georg Tepe, it is difficult to see what General Bobrikov can do against a people who will not be tempted or goaded into violence, and who meet every fresh aggression with the same passive resistance and with an appeal to the laws, to which even a Russian official cannot shut his eyes. If the military proposals were, illegally, to be promulgated and enforced as law in Finland, the situation would undoubtedly become very grave. For the placing of young conscripts in Russian regiments, and their removal to remote parts of the empire, as the Polish conscripts are removed, would stir very dangerous feeling amongst the hot-blooded and stubborn race, but even so, the attempt to raise the additional men would most likely simply serve to swell the ranks of those already pouring in a steady stream to America. It is true that no one may leave openly without a passport, but all the police in Russia could not guard a coastline like that of Finland if the hardy young peasants, knowing what was before them, made up their minds to escape to Sweden, whose coast is almost in sight. Is it quite impossible, then, that before it is too late, the Tsar may decide that it is better to walk in the paths of his father and grandfather, and not risk needless experiments? If he closes with the offer of the Diet, he will get an army of 12,000 men loyally and cheerfully enrolled, and serving under their own officers. Is he sure that if he tries to force on Finland the larger, illegal conscription, he will get more troops? Those who know Finland well, and who are by no means hostile to Russia, are convinced that he will not get so many, and that he will ruin the country into the bargain. This is, of course, nothing to the fanatics of unification. Monsieur Pobidonostev, the persecuting procurator of the Holy Synod, declares that the question is one of the unity of the army, and he asks indignantly, Are we not to be allowed, by suspending the privileges of Finland, to unify the Russian army. It will be noticed that Monsieur Pobidonostsev, who is an old professor of law, makes no pretense of right or legality in the matter. He knows too much of the constitution and of legal documents for that. He simply sees that it is a question between Finland's right and Russia's armed force, and of course, under the circumstances, right must be suspended. But will the Tsar be so easily pleased? He has two things to think of his reputation as a preacher of the doctrine that it is the supreme duty of sovereigns to put an end to these incessant armaments, and his own pledged word of honour to Finland. The first has already been more than once referred to. It lends a touch of comedy to the situation 
to see the Tsar led into such a situation for a paltry few thousand soldiers when the ink is hardly dry on his peace manifesto. But to that he may of course reply fairly enough that he only believed in disarmament when he thought he could persuade the other potentates to believe in it too. It is, however, a more serious matter when the question is considered not as one of policy, but of pledged faith. No one can examine fairly the constitution of Finland without having to admit that there is more than one question, so much on the borderline, that disputes and misunderstandings might honestly arise between Helsingfors and St. Petersburg, as to whether the matter was one to be settled by the Diet or by imperial ordinance. But it is beyond all possibility of argument that the question of conscription is not one of them. In the form of government of 1772, whose validity as a fundamental law has been acknowledged, as we have seen, by every Russian emperor and statesman, and which was expressly invoked by Alexander II and by his war minister, Count Milyutin, it is laid down that no conscription can take place without the knowledge, free will, and assent of the estates. And Alexander was well aware of this legal restriction, for in his proposals to the Borger Diet, he expressly pledged himself that there should not be in Finland ni présentement ni à l'avenir any conscription militaire ni autre moyen à cet égard contraire aux lois. Even the well-meaning Monsieur Orden unwittingly destroys the case of his friends on the military question, for, writing ten years ago, and not dreaming of what was to be the point of controversy in 1899, he not only admits that freedom from compulsory recruiting was one of the root laws, which Alexander confirmed at Borgo, but puts it forward as one of the obvious and indisputable matters whose very clearness he uses to strengthen him in his argument as to those other matters which he contends were not confirmed. And finally, even if the question had never before been raised at Borgo or elsewhere, the action of Alexander II is conclusive, when he, on December 6th, 18th, 1878, graciously approved and confirmed the military service law passed by the Diet in 1877, and further decreed that certain clauses of it should be declared fundamental, he raised the question altogether out of the realm of controversy. It became a law made by the Diet and the Emperor, and only alterable by the Diet and the Emperor, and both the War Minister and the Tsar know it. It is then little wonder that there is hesitation in St. Petersburg. It is all very well for Monsieur Pobidonostsev to declare that it is a question of unity, and that that settles the matter, and so it may, for him. But the Tsar has a character to lose, and it is, therefore, not inconceivable that when the forthcoming military scheme makes its appearance next spring, it may, after all, prove to be nothing more startling than that elaborated by the estates which, it must be remembered, is now the only constitutional proposition before the Emperor. Such an acceptance, implying a doubling of the Finnish army, would involve no very great surrender on the part of St. Petersburg, and it would at once dispose of the military difficulty. Meanwhile, the situation in Finland under the long-drawn-out suspense is deplorable. No complaints are received, no reply is elicited, except the Tsar will decide what is best for Finland, and that Finland must trust to the Tsar. It seems useless to point out to the Russians, who bring this forward in all good faith as a reason why Finland should be content, 
that it is just such fatuous remarks that form the really alarming part of the situation, for they prove that the Tsar and those about him have not begun to comprehend the question they are dealing with. The whole case of Finland is one of constitutional right, not of autocratic favour. It is a recognition of their constitution that they want, not a promise of goodwill, and a recognition of the constitution of 1809 and 1869, with the promise that it is only to come into operation when the Tsar thinks it advisable that it should come into operation, is a cruel mockery, and an insincerity not worthy of the successor of the three Alexanders. Yet that is what the two manifestos of February 15th and June 22nd amount to, and, in consequence, Helsingfors is almost like a city in the occupation of a hostile force. The governor and his staff are regarded as strangers and enemies, and they move through the streets unknown and unrecognised. Until this conflict arose, the governor-general, whether popular or unpopular, whether sympathetic under Alexander II or rigorous under Alexander III, identified himself with Finland and Finnish interests. The government house on the esplanade was the centre of the social life of Helsingfors. The entree was an honour sought after as conveying recognised social position. Now no Finlander crosses its threshold unless forced to do so on official business. No Finnish lady accepts an invitation. Neither personally nor socially is General Bobrikov qualified to fill the position occupied by governors of the type of Count Adlerberg. He is simply a rough soldier who performed to the satisfaction of the unifiers the task of dragooning the Baltic provinces, and who consequently was marked out for similar work in Finland. He is quite ignorant of both the languages of the people he is supposed to govern, and is thus dependent on spies and nondescript hangers-on for his knowledge of what is happening, and his relations with the Senate and the rest of the official world are of the most formal and frigid character. So complete indeed is the isolation in which he exists, that it was unpleasantly apparent during the recent official visit of the Grand Duke Vladimir, who, before his tour of military inspection was finished, is said to have remarked, It is clear that we have sent the wrong man. On that point, at any rate, public opinion in Finland is unanimously with the Tsar's uncle. To make such a man governor was the worst possible choice for the Russian government, if they wished to detach any part of the population of Finland from the constitutional party, and that is unquestionably the policy that was at one time thought of. Even so recently as the 1897 Diet, as we have seen, party feeling made itself felt more than was desirable, and a diplomatic governor might possibly have cherished hopes of creating something like a governor's party, no matter how small. But the clumsiness of General Bobrikov's methods has alienated all Finland so completely that even the most extreme partisans on either side have laid down their arms and formed themselves into one common party of constitutional defence, a party that is indeed not a party, but a nation, for there is no opposition. Even in a country with so many newspapers, not one can be found to take the governor's part, and in Helsingfors, the very compositors objected when they were asked to put the February Manifesto in type. The new governor has produced a unification, such as the Pan-Slavists had not dreamt of. One of the governor's inspirations for dividing the Finns and creating discord in their camp was the cause of a good deal of indignation, and finally of some amusement, in the spring of 1899. 
Lying along the shores of the White Sea in the province of Arkhangelsk are tribes largely of Finnish origin, and speaking a dialect of Finnish. Some of them are still semi-nomadic, and every spring they have, like their Tartar neighbours, been in the habit of starting for Finland, where they spend some months, much as our gypsies do, tinkering, peddling, horse-doctoring, and, they are not belied, doing a little picking and stealing when occasion serves. These vagrants are, as has been said, partly Karelian or Finnish in their origin, but the civilised Finns of Finland are not proud of the relationship, and they lump the whole wandering class together as the Tartars. Their cheap Arkhangel squares and their skills with cattle made the spring visitors at one time useful, but with the spread of railways, shops, and civilization generally into the north of Finland, they came to be regarded as mere nuisances, and laws were passed giving to local authorities power to treat them as rogues and vagabonds, to forfeit their wares, generally smuggled, and send them back to Russia. They still cling to their old habits, however, and turn up every year, but in steadily diminishing numbers and, as in the remoter rural districts there is a certain demand for their services, the authorities have continued to tolerate them. This year, however, the Tartars turned up in unprecedented numbers, and it was discovered further that the shiftless vagrants had suddenly developed great interest in the social question. It may be explained that although the vast majority of the Finnish peasants are owners of their own farms, there are a certain number of tolpare, or backstugajons, cottiers, who simply rent patches of land from the larger farmers, and whom also act as labourers. It was to this landless class that the Tartars addressed themselves, painting in glowing terms the Russian land system, explaining that the Russians were coming, and that when the Swedes had been driven out, and Russia left free to carry out her benevolent projects, the poor Finns would be happy and prosperous, and every man would have his share of the land, as in Russia. The Tartar as a social reformer was a novel phenomenon, and aroused suspicions. The law was enforced, some arrests made, and it was soon discovered that the men had been employed and carefully coached, and that they were simply repeating to the Finns a lesson that had been taught them by Russian police agents. It was, in fact, a reversal of the Napoleonic mot. They scratched the Tartar, and they found the Russian. The matter got into the newspapers, and the mole work, as it was called, of the Russian agents became the subject of bitter and indignant comment, which did not cease even when the whole batch of emissaries had been bundled across the frontier. It was remembered that when General Bobrikov was the governor of the Baltic provinces, a similar attempt was made, and with some success, to stir up disorder and social strife that a high Russian official would stoop to work of this sort, which in Russia proper would soon send the agitator to Siberia, can hardly be regarded as creditable, and such incidents do much to explain the dislike and contempt with which General Bobrikov is regarded all over Finland. He naturally displayed great irritation at the way in which his trick and its failure were exposed in the newspapers, and before long any reference to the Tartars or their Mulvodsvabite, was sufficient to bring down the prompt censorship and ultimate suspension of the offending journal. Here again one was able to observe the practical fashion in which the Finlanders face a difficulty. Not content with routing the Tartars, 
they promptly recognized the necessity of preventing such lying tactics from having any effect in the future, a society for popular instruction was formed, and little booklets setting forth the facts about the conditions of the people in Russia were circulated by the hundred thousand, so that in future, whatever may be the legitimate demands made by the Finnish cottiers on the Diet, they will never be under the delusion that their condition will be improved by the introduction of novel agrarian conditions, as in Russia. Only a political group that was very impudent, as well as very unscrupulous, would have ventured in the spring of 1899 to hold up the Russian land system as a thing to be admired and longed for, even by the poorest. At the very moment when these people were being hired to describe rural Russia, as an Elysium upon earth, famine and famine typhus were stalking unchecked through half a dozen provinces of the empire, and the Novovremje itself, the leading anti-Finnish organ in Russia, was calling out for subscriptions for a peasantry who, owing to monstrous overtaxation and a broken-down land system, cannot keep body and soul together on the richest agricultural land in Europe. In Monsieur de Witt's budget report for the present year, he urges, and not for the first time, the absolute and urgent necessity of a thorough reorganization of the antiquated Russian land system. And in his latest book, Le Régime économique de la Russie, Monsieur Kovalevsky, a Russian economist of European reputation, declares that under the present system, the Russian peasantry are being reduced to a condition of misery, bankruptcy, and beggary, and that so far from every man having a land of his own, there is already in Russia a landless proletariat of between two and three millions. And it is at such a moment that nationalist agents offer mons et merveilles to the Finnish cottiers and labourers if they will only help to upset their lawful government and come under the wing of the Russian land system. No one would wish to hold respectable Russian publicists or officials responsible for such blackguardly tactics, still less the emperor himself. But it is interesting, as showing how much the Tsar is in the hands of the officials and how little he is allowed to know. To add to what has been said, an item of the Russian official news in June, the Tatars having been exposed and routed in May. Finland had a prosperous year in 1898, and was able to set aside a sum of some 10 million marks for the much-required extension of the railway from Leoborg to Torneo in the far north. General Bobrikov saw his opportunity, and procured an imperial decree reducing the 10 million intended for the economic development of the country to 6 million, ordering 2 million to be handed over for the army and the other two million to be set aside for the alleviation of the situation of the landless population of Finland. And so the emperor is held up before Finland as an aider and a better in the unscrupulous tactics of the governor. The press has been referred to. It is here, perhaps, that the action of the Russian authorities has been most vindictive and unfair, for a more moderate and self-respecting press than that of Finland, taken all round, it would be difficult to conceive, but it does not approve of the governor and his ways, and so he seems determined to worry it out of existence. He has never attempted a prosecution. That would be fatal, for it would at once show how trumpery are his complaints. But his extra-legal powers are ample, 
As has been seen in a previous chapter, the Estates and the Emperor failed long ago to come to an agreement as to a press law, and so there is no law on the subject. It is a simple matter of discipline in the hands of the Governor, and it is believed to be the only part of his functions that General Bobrikov really enjoys, especially since, knowing no Finnish or Swedish, he is not much troubled with details. In some countries, the press a century or so ago suffered under a preventive censorship, that is to say, articles had, before publication was permitted, to be submitted to the censor and approved by him. In others, there was, and still is, a punitive censorship, under which that official had the power to warn, to seize, to suspend, or to suppress altogether papers of which he did not approve. This latter is, in practice, the method that is followed in Russia. All the leading papers in St. Petersburg and Moscow are allowed to appear without previous censorship, but they are carefully examined after they appear, and if found to transgress in any way, they may be warned, refused the right of sale in the streets, suspended, or finally stopped, all without any trial, public or otherwise, and without definite charge brought or proved. It is hard enough, but the Russian papers seem to get used to it, and to achieve the art of sailing very close to the wind. So long as the censor is kept in a good temper, and that can be managed by the proper means, dans la Russie il faut parler rubre. The papers are not so much hampered as might seem. But in Finland, by a triumph of perverse ingenuity, the two systems are combined. In the first place, every article must be set up in type, a proof printed, and taken for submission to the censorship. The censor may be out, or engaged, or asleep, or lazy, but the newspaper has to wait, though the hours may pass, till it suits him to look at the proof and approve or disapprove. If there be something doubtful, and the board of censors have to be consulted, that means more delay. If the article is disapproved, another has to be presented, and then it begins all over again. A favourite plan is to strike out the central arguments of the article, and leave it pointless and flabby. Or the arguments may be left in, and the conclusion struck out. With goodwill and a little stupidity, this can be kept up till the paper misses the morning train, and is late for its subscribers. But this is only the first stage, for after the paper is out, the second or Russian method comes into operation, and warning, seizure or suspension is visited upon a paper for publishing what has already managed to pass the censor. The only direction given to those who wish to find a safe path is that they must not say anything against the government, that is to say, against General Bobrikov, or his gendarmes, or his Tartars, or his bogus revolutionary plots. And as there is only one subject of political discussion in Finland just now, it is hard to write on politics and avoid it. There is no undue favouritism shown. Swedish and Finnish papers suffer alike. The Nyapressen and the Huvudstadbladet, along with the Ursi Sulmata and the Pohirleinen, there were 150 cases in the first three months of 1899, and the numbers have increased rapidly since. All this has no political result whatever. The articles were not seditious, but soberly critical, and there is no government press, no newspaper which supports the Russian view, and which might possibly influence readers in the absence of constitutional papers.
nothing is gained by stopping them, nothing, that is to say, except the ruin of flourishing properties to the building up of which men of ability, of culture, and of public spirit have devoted their lives, and which they had hoped to be able to bequeath to their children. But it amuses the governor. Many devices have naturally been adopted to evade this censorship. When a paper has been suspended as a periodical, a series of separate sheets have been issued, each issue bearing a fresh title. Tiny typewritten sheets of flimsy have been issued and circulated under cover as letters. Sheets have been printed in Stockholm and brought across for distribution, in the same way. But this was expensive and troublesome, and was soon dropped. It was excellent for the purposes of propaganda, but propaganda was not required where there was no one who needed to be convinced so the press has had, in the long run, to submit to its ruin as a commercial enterprise, or to abandon politics. It was the hard case of Figaro over again. On me dit que, pourvu que je ne parle à mes écrits, ni de l'autorité, ni du culte, ni de la politique, ni de la morale, ni des gens en place, ni des corps en crédit, ni de l'opéra, ni des autres spectacles, ni de personnes qui tiennent quelque chose, je puis tout imprimer librement. The Finnish papers may appear freely if they speak of nothing which interests anybody, and if they are civil to General Bobrikov. And the Tsar is puzzled to understand how he has alienated love and affection which were so liberally bestowed upon his ancestors. It is difficult to imagine what General Bobrikov and those who are behind him hope to gain by these methods. They cannot expect Finland to be much in love with Le Pan-Slavis Liberateur, when it comes to them in the uncouth and repulsive guise. And yet they can hardly hope to persuade an amiable and well-meaning Tsar to give them power to dragoon the country like a Central Asian carnate, for the pretext is entirely lacking. And so long as there is any law left in Finland, the unifiers are clearly powerless. It is one thing to persuade Nicholas II that this or that manifesto is not in itself an infringement of the constitution he is pledged to maintain, but it would be quite a different thing to come to him with a direct proposal to destroy that constitution altogether. The aggression thus far has, as we have seen, only had the effect of binding together the Fenomen and Svekoman parties into one united body, and the attempts to excite disaffection among the peasants have been ludicrous failures. No single voice in a country once distracted by faction is raised in favour of the unhappy Governor-General. Reference should perhaps be made, although they are hardly worth it, to the regulation attempts to spread the belief that dangerous conspirators are at work, and that if a firm and far-seeing Governor were not on the spot, terrible things might happen. Russian officials have a childlike faith in the efficacy of this well-worn trick. On one occasion, the capital woke up to find that revolutionary placards had been posted on the walls during the night. To judge by the tenor of these documents, things were threatening indeed. But here the fact that the police are a Finnish body, and are able to act independently of the governor, was of service. For the chief of the Helsingfors police was soon on the alert and he had little difficulty in tracing the placards to their place of origin, the printing office of the Russian local staff. And from time to time the Russian papers and agencies publish tales of emissaries, Polish, German, Swedish, English, does not matter much which, who are at work in the country inciting people against Russia. 
In August last, a Berlin paper was induced to publish a peculiarly absurd story about a rising that had been arranged for in February or March, and about the great purchases of arms and ammunition that were being made in Birmingham in preparation for the interesting event. The only place where nothing at all is known of these things is Finland itself, where the people high and low remain resolutely calm and orderly. In justice to Russia, and to Russian writers in general, it must be added that these Findevourers are representative only of their own discreditable circle, and that the officials and hack writers are the objects of contempt and ridicule on the part of the intelligent and independent Russians. But unhappily, it is the ignorant reactionaries, and not the intelligent and independent, who have the most influence with the emperor at present, and Finland suffers in consequence. In Governor von Haydn's time, the attacks of the Moscoviadamoste on Finland were so virulent and untruthful that the governor himself, although a strong nationalist and unifier, was compelled to remonstrate through the Ministry of the Interior, and the paper received a first warning which compelled it, for the moment, to modify its tone. But there are no remonstrances or warnings now, although the Moscoviadamoste and its school are more violent than ever. In pleasant contrast to the Moscow paper is the St. Petersburg namesake, which, since it came under the control of Prince Utomsky, has observed a dignified restraint and regard for the truth which are sadly lacking in most of the Russian journals. An English writer is not likely to be suspected of any partiality in selecting the St. Petersburg Via de Mosti for praise, for since Skobolev's death, England and English influence in the East have had no more determined and no more capable enemy than Prince Utomsky, but he fights his battles like a man of honour, and his paper is thus distinguished from the bulk of the Russian press. The Finnish question was indeed one of the causes of an outburst in the St. Petersburg via de Mosti on April 15th last, which caused some stir in Russia, and which was read with much satisfaction by the Finlanders, who have suffered so many things from the jackal press. Prince Trubetskoy contributed on that day a signed article in which, basing himself on the desolation of Edom, as described by the prophet Isaiah, of which the present condition of the Russian press involuntarily reminds me, he delivered a bitter attack on certain well-known papers. But the cormorant and the bittern shall possess it, the owl also, and the raven shall dwell in it, and he shall stretch out upon it the line of vanity and the stones of emptiness. The wild beasts of the desert shall also meet with the wild beasts of the island, and the satyr shall call to his fellow. The screech owl shall rest there, and find for himself a place of rest. For wild beasts of the desert, the Russian version reads, jackals, and for wild beasts of the islands, wildcats, and for bitterns, serpents. You will see, continues the writer, how well this picture of woe and desolation agrees with the present condition of our press. The howling of the jackals, the screeching of the owls and the wildcats, the hissing of the serpents, that is which takes the place of comprehensible human speech, and which is not only permitted, but is regarded as useful. There are, he goes on to say, questions of state which are of vital interest to the whole of Russia, 
but in these one hears only the cries of the jackals. With regard to Finland, to take an example, the government declares that it has never thought of infringing the fundamental laws of the Grand Duchy, but the jackals cry out that they do not recognize these laws and call on us to trample them under our feet. And to reduce Finland to an etomitic ruin like that of which the prophet speaks. The best Russians, indeed, do not hesitate to express their sympathy with Finland, but they appear to have no power to check the jackals, whose only weapon is abuse and misrepresentation. Even a very prominent minister of state was reported this summer to have encouraged the Finlanders to make a stubborn resistance and to have promised them ultimate victory. Grind, grind. He is reported to have said, The longer you grind, the better the flower. But, in a land where no public expressions of opinion are permitted, it is a little difficult to know how the grinding is to be done by men who see their country ruined before their eyes. Another Russian writer, bearing a well-known name and writing in a paper bitterly hostile to Finland, unconsciously supplies that country with a reason for resisting, to the last extremity, the process of Russification. The text of Monsieur Alexander Novikov, writing in the novel Vremja of April 9th, is that Russia is half-ruined, because in Russia there is no law, but only arbitrary power. The peasant, he says, does not try to improve his condition, because he has no security, no confidence in law or justice. He says with conviction, What is the law? You can do what you like. And he is right. Everything is possible because there is no law. People talk of economic and financial reform. How is it possible when on one hand ignorance robs the people of all initiative, and on the other, no one can say what are his rights? I remember Katkov began one of his articles with the words, The government is coming. Shall we be able to say one day to the peasant, Stand up, my son, the law is coming. Compare this with the powerful remonstrance of the Finnish estates against being deprived of the law that is already theirs. Without security under the law, every nation must have a difficulty in working out its development. No people can feel itself secure so long as it stands in dread, lest another law than its own may be imposed upon it, for a burden to the peasantry, as the old law expresses it. For the Finnish people, which has to contend with the obstacles to cultivation imposed by our harsh northern climate and our barren soil, the struggle will be twice as hard if it can no longer be carried out under the reassuring consciousness of the sanctity of the law inherited by the inhabitants from their forefathers, and in harmony with their own inborn sense of justice, for a people cannot change that idea of justice which is the work of centuries. So natural is the apprehension which, with a people in the present situation of the Finlanders, cannot but be felt concerning its own laws and sense of justice, that it cannot well be misunderstood by any one who, without prejudice or preconceived suspicions, endeavours to put himself in the same situation. But this is not enough. Where the sanctity of the law is not upheld, there the realization of its moral object suffers, for an obscured consciousness of right and a weakened sense of justice must be feared as its consequences, and revolutionary elements will most assuredly seek to gain a footing even in Finland. 
if the foundations of the people's consciousness of right are undermined. Especially serious importance will also attach if edicts are to be issued in opposition to fundamental law to the fact that those who appreciate the sanctity of the law can only be compelled by external force to obey those precepts which they regard not as law but as a despotic command, whilst collisions of duty and distress of conscience will arise with many whose only desire is to act rightly. And it can easily be conceived that these fears, this anxiety, and this confusion will be calculated to drive numbers of those members of the community who are best fitted for work out of the country, and so deprive it of the material means for labour and culture, thus rendering this cold land poor in population and in the means of maintaining cultivation. It is also evident that the capital, which, above all, requires safety and security, will disappear from a country which, former security for justice and safety are gone, as everyone is uncertain what changes the future may not have in store. The words, therefore, in which Alexander I justified his policy towards Finland, continue to be valid now as in the beginning of the century, words in which he expressed the opinion that the constitution and the laws which, as being consonant with the disposition, the customs, and the culture of the Finnish people for a long series of years, have been the basis of civil liberty and peace, could not be without danger limited or altered. It is to be feared that from many quarters no decisive importance will be given to the circumstances here set forth, but the estates venture to hope that when they are properly laid before him they will not be found wanting in importance by his imperial majesty, to whom the care and the welfare of the Finnish people have been entrusted. It may be that the opposed interests of the Russian people will be advanced against all this, but unless it can be denied that the Finnish people also is indebted for its existence as a nation, with a social organization of its own, to a higher law than any merely human one, and to the same supreme guidance by which even the great nations have their missions and their goals marked out, it cannot be enjoined upon the Russian nation to seek to impede or to destroy the life of the Finnish people, nor can it be of any service to that nation if by using its great power it should deprive the Finnish nation of its laws and institutions, and of the position it enjoys for the fulfilment of its mission. This appeal seems almost to be an application and an extension of the words used by Burke on a similar occasion. The question is not whether you have the power to make your people miserable, but whether it is not in your interest to make them happy. Russia can, of course, appeal to brute force and lay down for Finland what terms she pleases, but the lesson of violence and illegality is a dangerous one to teach in Russia, where the history of almost every reign is stained by crime from above and from below. It cannot surely be in the interest of Nicholas II to turn back the steps of Russia into the path of that barbaric despotism, tempered by assassination, from which all the emperors since Alexander I have tried at one time or another to save it. It would be grossly unfair, in speaking of Russia's relations with Finland, to ignore the good side of her past work in that country. That she largely left it alone, that the motto was, 
Finland governs itself, is only half the truth, for it was Russia that first created the possibility of Finland growing prosperous through peace and self-government. In the troubled centuries, we are told, the passing greeting of peasants in the Finnish frontier districts was, what is hard, and the answer was war quite as often as peace. Since 1809, war, or the fear of war, has never troubled the Finnish peasant, and this the country owes to Russia. It was an immense benefit that was conferred on Finland when Alexander I put an end to the strife of centuries at Borgo and gave the country its first impulse in the direction of progress and prosperity. Is it all to be abruptly stopped after ninety years? The mere supposition of such a thing seems monstrous. Many constitutional experiments have been tried in Russia. Some are still on their trial, and he would be a bold man who would venture to predict the outcome. In one corner only of the Tsar's dominions have the constitutional aspirations of the first Alexander had fair scope, and there they have been an unquestionable success. Surely both wisdom and honesty indicate that the successful policy of so many years should not be reversed. In spite of all that has happened, the people of the Grand Duchy still have hopes that the truth will sooner or later penetrate to the ears of Nicholas II, and when that happens, they have no great fear of the issue. It is hard to believe that the century whose first decade ended so brightly for them, owing to the statesmanship and the good faith of a Tsar, is destined to end in disaster, caused by the repudiation of that statesmanship and good faith by his latest successor. That the advocate of peace and disarmament is willing to go down to posterity as the Tsar who broke his word to Finland. End of Finland and the Tsars, 1809-1899 By Joseph Robert Fisher For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.